Zelenkis, who was king of the Locrians, aggression colony in southern Italy, he found that his little realm was being destroyed by the sin of impurity. He made a law against adultery, the penalty of which was the loss of both eyes. Now, what happened next cut to the heart of Zelenkis, this king, so deeply, and yet he had a great concern because of what happened. The king's own son was the first one to break that law. The question that arises in this father's heart and in this king's heart is, what am I going to do now? I have a controversy in my heart. My fatherly compassion. I want to have mercy on my son. I don't want both of his eyes to be plucked out. But oh, my kingdom and the subjects of my kingdom. As a king, his judgment urged the execution of the penalty which was going against the mercy that he wanted to exercise on his son. He knew that after the temporary wave of pity for the son passed by, his subjects would accuse him of partiality and injustice and not being faithful to the interests of the realm. So he has a dilemma on his heart. People are not going to see that I'm a just king. The law will not be upheld. They're going to see that I favor my son over the law and people are going to rise up against me. There's going to be trouble all over. How can I do this? I'm in such a predicament. But because of him being the governor of his government and seeing the conflict of his soul, he devised a half of an atonement. And the way that he did this was by the substitution of one of his own eyes for one of his sons. Now he has gotten himself out of this predicament. He is free to offer mercy and pardon to his son by taking half of the penalty of that thing onto himself as a willing sacrifice in that, in that sense. He upheld the strength of the law and public justice. And at the same time, he showed mercy to his son and he did damage to no one in the whole of his dealings. In the last episode, we had dealt with the penal satisfaction theory. And I said, you know, this people think that this is the only orthodox option that we have because that's what's been touted. But there is another biblical explanation for the atonement. Penalty is a moral force to prevent transgression. Penalty is a necessary motive against sin and the government of God. If there's no punishment, if we don't deal with sin, people are going to do whatever they want. To offer a free pardon to the penitent, to the person that feels sorry for what they've done without some counteracting force would break down this motive and it would encourage people to just keep on transgressing, to break the law, to sin against God. The atonement of Jesus Christ is designed to bring such forces into the government of God, to supply such motives that the penalty can be wiped clean, can be taken away from the person in the case of that one who is penitent without ruining the government of God's kingdom. Now, this is a little bit adapted by a man, Fairchild, and I may not agree with, a, with everything the man says, but that was a great statement. So what am I talking about? There was a man, Grotius, 1583 was when he was born. He died in 1645. He laid the foundations 
of what is called the governmental theory of the atonement. That's, and I say some people may differ here or there uh, from what he had done, but he really worked it out in the fires of this battle between Calvinistic um, theology and biblical theology or Arminian theology, as I would put it. There was, a, there was a battle going back and forth about the nature of the atonement and the nature of sin and salvation and, and what God has done for all of that. And Grotius really worked this out in those, those fiery times. Then years later, we find different people. Uh, they kind of were of, uh, there were some under the camp of the New England theory. Uh, and then there were others that weren't. And I just want to tell you some others that held to more of this governmental idea of the atonement. Uh, the younger Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' um, sons, Albert Barnes, the famous commentator, Charles Finney, uh, President Fairchild of the Oberlin College, um, also Miley, a Methodist theologian, A.M. Hills, who used to be a Congregationalist but ended up being a Nazarene preacher before the Nazarene Church had uh, gone in this liberal direction, A.H. Uh, Orton Wiley, who also was a Nazarene uh, contemporary with A.M. Hills, William Booth uh, of this, the Salvation Army, he founded the Salvation Army. There are many other people uh, but these are some bigger names. These people believed in this governmental theory because they believed that it encapsulated all the scriptural truths and did damage, uh, less damage to all of them. So what is this? Well, I would read to you Grotius' propositions of the governmental theory of the atonement. And I may give some definitions because some of his wording is not so easily accessible to us today. Number one, the right to punish is the right of a ruler only. Hence, God must be considered as a ruler and the right to punish belongs to a ruler as such, since it exists not for the punisher's sake, but for the sake of the commonwealth to maintain its order and to promote the public good. So a ruler has the right to punish so that he can maintain a good and right government of a people and of a kingdom. Number two, sin deserves eternal penalty. And the penalty must not be remitted or done away with except on rectorally sufficient grounds. God has therefore most weighty reasons for punishing, especially if we are permitted to estimate the magnitude and multitude of sins. What does, there was a word here called rectorally sufficient grounds. What does that mean? Uh, we're we're going to define that in just a little bit later. Uh, but number three, God was willing on account of his great love, notice it's his love and not his wrath, though he could have justly punished all men with deserved and legitimate punishment, that is with eternal death, and had reasons for so doing to spare those who believe in Christ. So God was willing to have something, he was willing to punish if it meant that he needed to. Number four, but since we must be spared either by setting forth or not setting forth some example against so many great sins, in his perfect wisdom, God chose that way by which he could manifest more of his attributes at once, namely both clemency and severity or his hate of sin and care for the preservation of his law. Number five, Although sin is an intrinsic evil, there is no absolute necessity arising therefrom for its punishment. The punishment of sin is just, but not in itself an obligation. The intrinsic evil of sin renders its penal retribution, the punishment, just, but not a requirement of judicial rectitude. So it's not like you're a bad judge if you don't punish. He's trying to do the highest good and the, and the highest right in any given situation, and penalty is an option. Threaten penalty unless marked by irrevocability, is not absolute. A threat differs from a promise. The, the promise conveys a right and takes on, uh, or excuse me, the um, 
fir- uh, the latter conveys a right and takes on obligation. The former does not. So number six, the divine law is positive and its penalty is remissible. The law in precept and penalty is a divine enactment. In execution, a divine act. The execution is not judicial uh, obligation except for rectoral ends. So here's that word rectoral. I said we're going to define that. Rectoral pertains to being a ruler, a governor, or a leader. And he said that this punishment is not a judicial end, meaning that the law doesn't demand that the governor has to punish without mercy, that there's penalty without mercy. But he has rectoral ends in mind. And that is when a government or when a governor makes a choice of judgment for the highest good. He has the right to punish, but then he has to look at everything and say, is this the best end for the individual and for the entire realm or society over which he is ruling and reigning? So he has the ability. God's got the ability to punish if it needs be. Number seven, penalty is profoundly important in the interest of moral government. Forgiveness too freely granted or too often repeated and especially on slight grounds would annul the authority of the law or render it powerless for its great and imperative rectoral ends. There's that word again. Thus, there is a necessity for an atonement for some vicarious provision, which on the remission of penalty, moving the penalty aside, may conserve the ends of the penalty. And the penalty was to make the strength of the law stand up and fear throughout the kingdom to do such wicked things again. And to stop this one person who's done this from doing it again, either if either it be by death or be, be by reform. So such a provision is found in the death of Jesus Christ. It was a manifestation of the goodness and severity of God and the odiousness of sin and a deterrent from people sinning again. So the completed theory, now that's a lot, but the completed theory contains all that is good and true. And either uh, there's a, a theory called the moral influence theory that Jesus died just to pull on our heartstrings so that we might come back to him. It contains what's good in there or the satisfaction theory, which is that God's wrath was, he was so mad. He was obligated to punish sin. The, the good thing about this governmental theory of the atonement is it avoids the limitations of both of these thoughts and their sad errors. So A.M. Hills defines the governmental atonement this way. The atonement is a governmental expedient by which Christ voluntarily suffered vicariously for us and preserves the integrity of God as a moral ruler, protects the interests of his government and of his subjects, displays his hatred of sin, his love for the sinner, and his regard for his law and justice. While he offers pardon or forgiveness to all who repent and believe, it is provisory in its purpose and conditional in its effect. In other words, The atonement was made there for you and I if we repent and believe. So it's provision for us. It's there if we want it, but it's conditional in its effect because I must repent and believe in order for it to be uh, the benefits of it to be mine. And so we see here this uh, idea of the governmental um, theory of the atonement. um, it, It goes in such a way that it doesn't get us in the weeds like the penal theory on a lot of strange things, but it pulls together moral responsibility, God's justice, his holiness, his mercy. Um, every attribute of God seems to shine through this. Whereas when we go in the penal theory, it may uh, you know, magnify the justice of God, but his mercy, his love, his grace, his, his justice over all humanity is put in question under that penal theory. But a lot of questions may come up as we think about this, well, then are you saying that penalty 
is done away with in this. No, because under the government of God, penalty is extremely important. When somebody acts against the laws of God's government and is punished, it shows the government as competent and effective. You know, if somebody does something wrong and then they have a consequence, then we say the government's doing its job. Sin is not ignored. The breaking of the law is not ignored. And then also that penalty does this to the heart of somebody and the mind of somebody. The temptation to do wrong is met with a fear to go against God and his government. The scriptures are filled with warnings that agree with this. That that threat of penalty, the possibility of penalty makes inside of our hearts a fear to do against it. But if Jesus paid all of my debt and there's nothing I can do, I'm going to be elected. Uh, the, the grace of God's going to overcome me and I'm just going to be this Christian or whatever. If that's the case, then it doesn't really matter. That doesn't strike the fear in the heart because I might say, well, maybe I'm one of the elect. Maybe I'm not. And if I'm not, there's nothing I can do about it. So I might as well just keep on living this life and not even try and seek God. The penalty in God's moral government, it also restrains the outbreak of more evil. Because if somebody sees that there's no punishment towards sin, they're emboldened to keep doing whatever they please without any fear of consequence. Also penalty, it makes sin seem dangerous to the individual. It's dangerous to the individual and dangerous to the government of God. If God allows sin to just keep moving on like this, then who? what kind of God is this? So do I want to serve him? Also the penalty does not imply an obligation to punish sin, but a right to if it is the highest good. So if mercy can rightfully be given, we're told in the heart of God that he's disposed to give mercy. Mercy rejoiceth against judgment, James says. That is God's disposition. He would like to have mercy rather than to just, you know, send out thunderbolts of wrath on people because he's so filled with wrath. Behold the goodness and severity of God, the scripture tells us. So the power of penalty um, is told in the day of the coming judgment. Because sometimes people will think, well, I can do all this wickedness and there's no consequence, so I'll just keep on doing whatever I please. And because there's no immediate uh, consequence to their sin, they kind of go on. But then when the preacher and the Bible speak of a coming day of judgment and what's going to happen to the wicked, then that power of penalty is held up before them. And they've got a choice to make, a personal responsibility, which goes with all the other scriptures. In the death of Christ, two things can be seen. Sin is costly. God emptied himself of his power and became a man to give the only possible perfect remedy for sin. Remember uh, Zelenkis, as I spoke about, and we'll deal with that again and expound it, but the story in the beginning. Also, sinners put the innocent Christ on the cross. So Jesus, an innocent man, came down to be a perfect remedy for us, vicarious uh, suffering on our behalf. He willingly suffered. He wasn't just put there because of God's wrath. It was a choice. It was the love of God that constrained him to do so. But then to see how odious sin is, <clears throat> we, we see that sinners put the innocent Christ on the cross. God ordained that the lamb was going to come and be slain from the foundation of the world. But sinners, by their wicked hands, crucified and killed Christ with their own free will. What a terrible thing. So we see that penalty in the government of God is very important. In case you've just tuned in, you are listening to God's Resistance, where we resist sin, self, the devil, and the world. You can hear us every Sunday at 9 a.m. on WITK, 1550 a.m. and 94.7 FM. Visit and like our social media accounts with Facebook, Twitter, Gab, Gab TV, and YouTube. 
visit our website at www.godsresistance.com and contact us by email at gods.resistance at gmail.com or call us at 570-362-7782. So we see penalties very important, but is there a risk in giving forgiveness to people? So in human government, if we just gave pardon to somebody and when we know they've done wrong without some sort of atonement, it weakens the force of the law. But with the atonement of Jesus Christ, it can be seen that God is faithful to the interests of this kingdom, of his kingdom. This can also strike a healthy fear in the sinner. God has secured the confidence of people that he's a just governor. If that is the case, then he will be just in his dealings with their sins if they are unrepentant. So he didn't ignore sin. The death of Christ helps to see that sin was not ignored. There's a tremendous cost that went into this. And if they do not repent and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus, then God cannot rightfully give them pardon and forgiveness. Penalty is their lot. This brings, the governmental theory, brings the greatest influence towards repentance on the human heart. God willingly humiliated himself in Christ on the death of the cross. His own creation, we're told in John in the first chapter, didn't even know who he was. His own people hated him and had Jesus killed. So God willingly stepped down and did this. And because of the hardness of men's hearts and their depravity, there needs to be a mighty moral influence to break them to repentance. And we find in Romans 5, 7 through 8, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we find this principle here. He's commending his love towards us. It's not all about wrath. It is about love as well. And his love made that tremendous price of the sacrifice of Christ come forward on our behalf. That is the heart of God. He And you know, this was one of the very things that broke me when I realized Jesus died for me even though I may never turn to him and I go through all of my days spitting in his face, he still died for me. And it begged the question, why? Why did he do this? That is the very influence God wants to have over the heart with the death of Christ on the cross to display his love for humankind, that that the availability of pardon, forgiveness, regenerating grace to make us new creatures, all of that is available the cross of Christ, but it's not going to go against our own personal responsibility as to, will I repent and believe on the gospel, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus? So there is the truth of substitutionary atonement also here. The penal satisfaction theory, as we had mentioned before, says the punishment of the righteous one is substituted for the punishment of the guilty one. So wrathful demand for punishment, that's in the forefront in the penal satisfaction theory. In this governmental outlook of the uh, atonement, the substitution of the voluntary, vicarious suffering of Christ for the infliction of penalty on the sinners who are willing to repent and believe. Totally different. It's not just the wrath of God that's in the forefront, not a substituted penalty, but a substitute for a penalty, which is a huge difference. And it's a voluntary substitution of Christ. There's no punishment. Christ just said, I will step in on behalf of this one. I will step in there to make a way because I don't want them to perish and go to hell eternally. And this is the only way in the government of God 
that mercy can be exercised on a soul is for me to step in there, for me to be that voluntary, vicarious, suffering sacrifice. That's the way to do it. Remember the story of Zelenkis that I had started with in the beginning? This is perfectly illustrated there. Um, what he did was a provision above the law and far above retributive justice, you know, must be punished. Law or justice could not have been punished uh, or could not have punished the father for the sin of his son. Law or justice couldn't have done that because that doesn't make any sense. This atonement of Zelenkis, what did it accomplish then? Did it satisfy Zelenkis' angry disposition to pay back his son, the sinner? There's nothing penal about this, but rather it was a very smart move uh, in his governance. The infliction of the penalty upheld the highest form of government in the situation. The son's sin was not ignored. The integrity of the governor was kept intact in the sight of the kingdom, and pardon could be given without damage to the son or the subjects of the kingdom. The ruler protected his own honor and authority. The law was still upheld in all of its strength, and Zelenkis suffering voluntarily as a father with compassion and as a government or governor over his administration intensified respect for him to all of the people that were involved. So it was the voluntary offering of himself. Law couldn't do that. He went well above law. Love dictated this. So then we find the voluntary offering of, of Jesus himself revealed and still reveals God in his justice, holiness, and love. It shows God's honor and law. It shows his concern for the rights and interests of moral people. It shows how sin is evil and hostile to God's rights as the governor and damaging to the welfare of all the moral people that are in his government. So he voluntarily offered himself and it shows that the, what sin is, but it shows his justice, his holiness and love, his care and concern over all these various parts. This governmental theory gives the most exalted view of the justice of God. So in the penal theory, justice is only punishment. Uh, a man shed says, justice has but one fun function, to inflict penalty. It doesn't even matter if the highest good dictates otherwise, mercy or pardon. It, justice has one function, inflict penalty. This is much like an oppressive communist country. Every transgression against the government, government in a communist country is punished and usually pretty severely. So how honorable are those countries then? What, what is the highest good that's accomplished through their way of doing things? What effect does that punishment, that strict justice or punishment affect? What effect does it have on the people there? They're usually terrified. They have no hope and no true confidence in the government of God. This is essentially what the penal satisfaction theory boils down to. But the governmental theory exalts public justice. To punish when God must, to forgive when he can, Public justice is divine justice in moral administration, securing the highest good of all the moral beings or the moral universe. <clears throat> so with God having a heart disposed to exercise mercy, the atonement was a necessity in God's justice. It wasn't just about punishment. It's about the highest good. Um, and so it's, it's, it's about doing right with all things considered. The atonement makes it possible that people are not treated according to what they deserve. Through their repentance and faith, they can rightfully be pardoned and the penalty of the law can be erased. God's heart was to find a way to treat men better than they deserve. It is not right to pardon somebody. If, if it's not right to pardon somebody, then God's not going to do that. And that would be the person who has an unrepentant heart. We deserve as sinners to be sent to hell. We are told that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. So then it's right in God's good and benevolent heart to make a way for that to be possible without being unjust. He wants to give mercy and to forgive, but he can't do that and be unjust at the same time. So there is still judgment 
and retributive justice paying back the wrongs to those that do not repent and believe. That is the right thing to do given all of the circumstances. In this, God acts justly. We are told that the host of heaven will praise God's glorious justice uh, as we look into that fiery inferno of the unrepentant and fallen angels in the book of Revelation. It will be seen as right action in God's judgment. And this is done for the good of others and for the entire government of God. And nobody is going to be thinking, that doesn't seem right. We'll be seeing that and saying, you did right, Lord, you did right. Um, <clears throat> there is also a higher satisfaction component, component Excuse me, in the governmental theory. Uh, it's not just the satisfaction of wrath and justice. The atonement of Jesus also satisfies the compassion of God to forgive sinners. It's also in full harmony with the righteousness of God. He doesn't have arbitrary legislation, but thinks about the people he's ruling over when he made his laws. He acts justly, not in an arbitrary sense, according to some of his supposed decrees. He not only declares that he is good, right, and holy, but he acts as if he's good, right, and holy in a way that we understand, not in some special knowledge uh, that Calvinism would bring forward. It, the, the governmental theory puts the mighty forces of the cross on full display. We see the exalted character of Christ in his voluntary death. We see the most unselfish action. This puts a longing in people's hearts to be like Jesus. Nobody wants to be a vengeful, wrathful person that needs to take his fury out on something. Uh, but in our heart, it puts a love for true holiness when we see the voluntary death of Christ. The love of God is on full display in a way that makes perfect logical sense. God has compassionate love for sinners that moved him to send his only begotten son so that pardon can be rightfully given without breaking down uh, of the force of right and wrong. The goodness and severity of God are in perfect balance. And then the true sovereignty of God is on display for everybody. He has the right and rule to reign as supreme governor of the moral universe without question. None of his dealings can be seen as unjust by human reasoning. God does not just appear stern and vindictive just because he can. God chose perfect reasons for his justice. Every mouth will be silenced and stopped if they ever try and question him. God can rightfully pardon those who repent and believe without his justice falling apart. This a governmental theory agrees with all the biblical terms, atonement, reconciliation, um, expiation, and redemption. The atonement is only a provision under this theory, which the Bible also declares. It enables God to offer salvation consistently with public justice. It renders it possible for us to be saved if we will by repentance and faith on our part. But whether we get saved or not, whether the atonement avails for us depends on ourselves. This is A.M. Hills, what he said. The penal theory is different though. A.M. Hill says the satisfaction theory, on the other hand, teaches that Jesus took the place of some elect ones, was punished in their stead, and secured for them an absolute salvation which they could not miss if they should try, whether they are willing or unwilling. In God's sovereign time, an uh, omnipotent, efficacious, irresistible grace will compel them into the kingdom and corral them into heaven. The reader may judge what is the scriptural theory. Uh, then also the governmental theory excuse me, is an agreement with five huge facts of scripture. I think I may have distilled this down out of five facts, but all sinners are under divine condemnation and guilt. Their conscience tells them that, the law of God tells them that, the Holy Spirit attests to that. The penal satisfaction theory says that the sins of the elect were already paid for through the decree of God from the foundation of the world. So guilt for sins doesn't make any sense. Troubled conscience doesn't make any sense. The conviction of the Holy Spirit doesn't have any function if they're infallibly saved from their past sins and then, and then all their future sins. Also, uh, the governmental theory is in agreement with this scriptural fact. A person who is justified of their sins and saved is in harmony with this governmental theory. They were convicted of their sins. 
They were in misery over their sins. They felt the wrath of God abiding on them. They knew the persuasion of the Holy Ghost towards repentance and faith. They finally came to a point where they repented and believed on the name of the Lord Jesus. All the weight and guilt of their sins was removed in the moment of the repentance and faith. And they now know themselves to be the children of God. None of those make sense under the penal satisfaction theory or limited atonement if no, if man doesn't have a part in all of this. And it also agrees, the governmental theory agrees with the scriptural teaching that the atonement of Jesus Christ was made and offered for all. The atonement is a provision for those who will repent and believe. People are conditionally elected as the scriptures teach. We are to give the gospel to every human being and their repentance and faith in Jesus Christ will either change their state and the grace of God will pour into their lives or they will be unrepentant and the wrath of God will abide on them and judgment will be their lot. So I hope this helps you to understand the tremendous beauty of the atonement of Jesus Christ and not some awful caricature of who God is. But this brings together all the wonderful parts of the atonement of God and the heart of God. Your next step is to call me. Call 570-362-7782. I'd love to talk with you over the phone. You can text that number. I'd love to get together with you if you're local um, and, and then just talk about things. Maybe you need help through some of these things. Maybe you're not saved and you need to become saved. You need to repent and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. I would love you to do that. Also visit godsresistance.com for more resources. You'll find where to uh, link up on podcasts, uh, YouTube, any other kind of platforms. But above all, join the resistance, God's resistance. Thank you to Spectacular Sound Productions for giving permission for the use of the song Heroes and Monsters, which was edited and used in part on this production. The permission was granted under Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International Creative Commons License. That license may be found at https colon forward slash forward slash creativecommons.org forward slash licenses forward slash by hyphen essay forward slash 4.0 forward slash legal code.